But yeah, we're going to get right back into our sermon series. Uh, we've been talking about renovation and uh, not necessarily renovating our campus, although we can probably use some renovation in this space, but renovation of our lives, um, changing who we are, uh, transforming uh, into someone better or something better. And so what we've done is taken this idea of renovation um, to describe a biblical and theological concept that we find in the New Testament all throughout uh, called sanctification. Sanctification. And in the Greek, uh, it's literally metamorphomai. Metamorphomai. Uh, and a transliteration of that word is metamorphosis, as uh, we're probably all familiar with this concept, right? When a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And so I have a four-year-old. Uh, his name is uh, Deacon. And one of his favorite books is The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Yeah, and I've read it like uh, probably a hundred times. Like I probably memorized it. Uh, but it's, it's a pretty interesting storybook. Uh, this caterpillar, this very small one, just has a ravenous appetite, crazy appetite, just, just eating everything. And of course, Deacon's favorite day is the last day where the caterpillar eats a, chocolate, a piece of chocolate cake, a salami, pickle, ice cream cone. And then it just gets so big, and then it just you know, wraps itself in a cocoon and turns into a butterfly. And I was actually thinking about the story. Like, what's the message of this story? I don't know how healthy it is, right? Eat whatever you want and you become beautiful, which, which isn't true. It's quite the, I wish, right? We all wish that, but that's not true. Uh, but it's this radical transformation from this tiny, like caterpillars are pretty ugly, especially the fuzzy ones. I don't like the fuzzy ones, especially. But then it turns into a, a very beautiful, you know, flying thing, right? It's a, it's a drastic change. Uh, the Christian life calls us to this type of change. Do you guys know that? Uh, to be transformed, uh, to be renewed, to renovate, and to change. And, uh, and for the caterpillar, it's, it's about a, a four-week process, depending on the climate. And what it does, it eats, eats, it outgrows out of its skin, and it sheds its skin, and does it about five times, right? And so this is a pretty short amount of transformation, but the Christian life actually is a lifelong transformation, uh, it's a lifelong endeavor. It's not a one-time activity, or it's not even four-week activity. It's actually until we die, or until Christ comes back. But the Christian is called to transform in this way. Um, Paul, in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, says in chapter 4, verse 3, it is the will of God that you be sanctified, that you be transformed, to be changed. And Paul, again, in another one of his letters, tells us that this is precisely the reason why Jesus was sent to die for us, to live, uh, to live, die, and to resurrect on the third day. The very purpose of the gospel and the very purpose of our salvation is to be transformed. And he says that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that he does all these things so that we live a holy and blameless life. We've got to think about that, because I think oftentimes we have an incomplete gospel understanding. We live our lives with an incomplete gospel. What I mean by that is that many of us, we've kind of dwindled Christianity to just basically simply escaping punishment. That's what we've just kind of reduced it to. You know, I, I don't want hell, and so I'm going to believe in Jesus. He died for my sins, and 
I'm just waiting now to cash my ticket into heaven. And so the extent of our Christianity actually stops there at the crucifixion. And the reason why that's an incomplete gospel is because Jesus doesn't remain dead. After three days, he rises again, conquering sin and death. But not only that, he gives us his righteousness. He enables us to actually live a holy and blameless life. Right? And so we are called to be transformed. And the goal of our transformation isn't, of course, a butterfly. Our goal of our transformation is Jesus Christ. That we are being like him. We are growing to be more and more like him, to think like him, to see the world like him, to speak like him, to engage in relationships like him. And that's the ultimate goal of sanctification. And this is what uh, Paul once again says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's going to pop up on the screen. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? Sanctification, transformation. Why is sanctification important? Why is sanctification such an important call in our lives? Now, I just want to illustrate something real quick to you guys. I'm going to try to use some props here. Let's say, right, let's say this is salvation. And forgive me, praise team, right? Let's say that's salvation, right? So the Christian life starts as salvation. So for the caterpillar, the caterpillar starts after it's, you know, hatches out of the egg. This is the Christian life. The Christian life doesn't end at salvation. We haven't arrived if we've obtained salvation. That actually is the very beginning of our Christian life. It's not, we're not done at salvation, right? So many of us, we think Christianity, oh, I have, I have salvation, so I'm just going to now wait. I'm just going to coast until I get to, you know, cash that ticket in, right? So this is salvation. Then what's the end? What's the butterfly of the Christian life, if I can say? What is this right here? It's glorification, now, I'm using some theological terms. If our Christian life stays as, uh, starts as sal- salvation, it ends. Our butterfly is glorification. Now, what glorification means is that we are now glorified. Uh, there's no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more disease, right? That's, that's what we have to look forward to. That's the Christian home, to, be perf- uh, to have perfect bodies and to worship God perfectly, and to be in his presence. That's glorification. So now where's the Christian life then? We're living in between that. We're living in a gap period. The in-between salvation and glorification. Now why are we here? What's the purpose? Why is sanctification so important in this process? Well, first of all, sanctification glorifies God. It's, it get, uh, God takes pleasure when we become more and more like his son. It just makes sense. He takes pleasure when we're being sanctified. But not only that, our sanctification has a missional purpose. We're left here to put God on display, to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. Now think about this. How effective is it in our witness of the gospel if we just say what the gospel is? Isn't it true that it will be that much more effective if we live consistent with our message? That, that we're love, loving others like Jesus loves, that we are forgiving others as Jesus has forgiven. We show compassion, not just as a message, but we actually go out and show compassion to those that are less fortunate. Sanctification in this gap period is important not only to glorify God individually, but we have a mission 
it's a, there's a missional purpose to our sanctification. And so we're living in this gap period. And that's why God calls us to be sanctified, to be in the world, but don't be in love with the world. Engage the world, but don't let the world uh, transform you into their likeness. We have, to ha- we have to have this uh, very clear understanding of what our purpose is in this gap period between salvation and glorification. So the big question that we're trying to answer in this series is, how does this change happen? How can we be transformed? How can we renovate our lives? Because I think many of us were discouraged because we haven't been seeing a lot of renovation. We haven't been seeing a lot of sins. Small group after small group, it's the same prayer request. Oh man, I'm struggling with lust. Maybe year after year, it's the same sin that is plaguing our lives. The same habits that are just distancing us from the grace of God. Over and over again, it's the same sin. So how does this happen? How does true transformation happen in our lives? And the title of our series gives it away. Renovation happens by grace. But even then, that's so kind of abstract. What does that mean? What what does it mean for us to be changed or transformed by grace? And so our whole objective is to answer this question. Last week, Pastor Michael, uh, he preached on the heart. And it was very sobering because a lot of us, we think we are bad because we do bad things, but we actually discovered last week we do bad things because we're actually bad. Our, our hearts are corrupt. And out of the overflow is what we, it manifests itself in sins that we commit. Lying, cheating, lusting coveting. And so it's the, it's the problem of our hearts. It's the center of, our hearts are the center of all that we do, all our being, all our thoughts, all our decisions. And what the Bible tells us is that what God does in his miraculous salvation, he removes a heart of stone. A stone heart is incapable of accepting God's love, first of all, but it's also incapable of giving God and reciprocating that love back to him. Heart of stone, can't do anything with it. So what God does, and we heard this in the prophet Ezekiel, he removes a heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. So it's not an improvement of the heart. We were given a brand new heart, able to receive God's love and also to give it back to him. And so we are given a new heart. And this happens when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are born again. Another word is regeneration. We are a new creation with a new heart, with new affections. And so the heart is so important when it it comes to this idea of transformation. Today, what I want to talk about is the mind, the renovation of the mind. Our minds are so important when it comes to being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So what role does our minds play in sanctification? See, I want, to, I want to look into scripture to see how grace transforms our minds. And, and what we're specifically going to look, like is, look at is the progression of the human mind, according to scripture, the progression of the human mind. So the first thing we have to look at is the captive mind, the captive mind. Secondly, the rescued mind. And lastly, the renewed mind. So the captive mind, the re- rescued mind, and the renewed mind. What is the captive mind? What is the captive mind? I mean, we grew up hearing this. You are what you eat, right? You are what you eat. 
the very hungry caterpillar actually is, contradicts that. Uh, but actually, I, I, my conviction is we are what we believe. I am what I believe. Meaning that we, in, in, in the fundamental, like in our minds, our fundamental beliefs is actually what makes us who we are. It, it dictates the way we, we make decisions, how we talk, what we pursue, even how we conduct our relationships, it's our beliefs. What happens in our minds is who we are. We are what we believe. And so then the question that we have to ask is, what is the condition of the human mind? What is the human condition? What's the problem? If there is a problem, are we we born a good person? Are we born with a good mind? Do we, do we naturally just think good thoughts? Are we naturally just humble? Are we naturally not thinking about ourselves all the time? And some will say, yeah, you know what? Human, the human condition is actually is positive. It's good. And some of us will point to our children. Look at how innocent and pure they are. And I'll say, look a little bit closer. <laughs> and just wait a little bit longer. And you will see that they don't have to learn how to sin. They're just inherently sinful. They're selfish. Isn't this true? See, the scriptures are very clear. We aren't even born with a neutral heart or even a neutral mind, right? With no inclination for good and no inclination for evil. We're just neutral. The Bible is very clear. As we are born, we are born with an inclination towards sin, an appetite for sin, a desire to live a life contrary to the way that God called us to live or created us to live. It's not even neutral. We are corrupt through and throughout our hearts and our minds. And you just need to turn on the news to see how corrupt the human condition is. A few verses uh, just to share that. I'm not just making this up. Genesis 6.5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And Ephesians 2.1, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins. What, what are we talking about? We're talking about a doctrine called total depravity or the doctrine of total inability. That through and through, by our, in our nature, we are corrupt and wicked. Naturally, we are not inclined to worship God, to pursue God, to know him. Naturally, it's, it's, it's not natural for us to desire God, to worship him and to get to know him. Actually, we're hostile towards him. Jesus says that we were enemies to him and that we were children of Satan. Right? We're dead in our trespasses meaning that we are born with a spiritual defect. We are born with spiritual deformities. And if I can say and go as far, we are born spiritually brain dead. This is the captive mind. Our minds aren't free. Our wills aren't free. We are governed and ruled by sin. That is what the Bible tells us. See, but total depravity and total inability doesn't mean that we, we're not capable of doing good. Yeah, we, we see, you know, bad people doing good things and we, we ourselves, we do good things all the time. But what total depravity says is that 
our intentions and motives of those good things, even in God's sight, it's evil. Right? It's self-seeking, self-serving. Isaiah 64, 6, on our best day, what, Isaiah, uh, what, what God says, our, our good works, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. On our best day, right? In, with our minds being captive to sin, even if we try to do a good thing, God sees, sees it as a filthy rag. So we are defective throughout. So why and how did this happen? How did our minds become captive to sin? Uh, one of my favorite movies, not probably, I don't know about my top 10, but one of my favorite movies is, is the movie Inception. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Leonardo DiCaprio, just amazing actor. But the idea is that you go into someone's dream and steal ideas. But the whole idea of Inception is they're trying to plant an idea in the deep uh, uh, subconscious of an individual so that he will break up his father's empire. And so, of course, a competitor to that... that, that um, Empire, Empire hires Leonardo DiCaprio to do this, right? It's an impossible task. But of course they, you know, I'm just giving it away. They succeed, right? But still watch it. It's a good movie. They succeed and he actually breaks up. And the, and the idea that they're trying to implant into this, this uh, young man's life is be your own person. Be your own person. Don't do what your father did. You can just do things on your own. And they succeed, Right? The power of an idea, so important. We are what we believe. And what happens in the Garden of Eden? The first inception happened. First inception happened. Where does sin start? Did it start in the heart? Did it start with the eyes? No. Sin started with an idea. We, we have to understand how Satan operates, then we can guard ourselves. Satan was trying to plant an idea in Adam and Eve's mind, and therefore it made, it made its way down to the heart, and therefore they rebelled. We have to know the order. It started with an idea, the idea that God is holding back. He's withholding his blessings. He is not good. You can be better than God. These are the ideas that are being planted into Eve's mind. He, she is and gives it to Adam. And therefore, that's how original sin started. That was the first inception. It started with the mind. And therefore, now we are born with our minds captive to sin, to believe in the same things that Adam and Eve believed. I'm better without God. Actually, God isn't, isn't all that good. I'm a better God than he can be. And therefore, what? We worship created things instead of the creator. And Paul again says in Romans that God gave us up to this debased mind. We, we chose this, and he gives us, he, gives us uh, he allows us to continue in this. So sin started with an idea. So the, sin, uh, the, the human mind is in captivity. See, apart from a super, supernatural act of God, unassisted, unaided by the Spirit of God, we will never think high thoughts of God. We will never think of pursuing God. We just, we just can't because we're dead in our trespasses. We are spiritually brain dead. Something needs to happen to us in order for us to think high thoughts of God, to pursue knowledge of Him. So what I'm not saying here is that we can't know anything about God. Yeah, we can know a lot about God. 
You can go to theology, you can go to seminary, you can get a degree, you can know a lot about God, but still fail to worship and love and adore Him. And, and this is true. We have, we have professors in secular colleges teaching on theology, but they don't worship God. They don't see Jesus as good. So it's possible. And so we can know a lot about God, but fail to worship him. Uh, I believe one of the greatest downfalls right now in the Christian community is how little we engage our minds in scripture and knowledge. Uh, right? We just kind of succumb to this easy believism because our parents tell us to believe, we just believe. And now we got to engage our minds. So what I'm, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying don't pursue knowledge. Pursue knowledge. Uh, read books. Uh, ask questions. Right? Do all of that. But what I'm saying is unaided, unassisted by the Holy Spirit, we can't even help, we can't uh, hope to even love God and to adore Him. So the Holy Spirit is necessary to convict us and convince, convince us that what's in here is true. Left to ourselves, we can't come to that conclusion. So our minds are, our minds are captive, imprisoned to sin. So then how does grace rescue the mind? How can our minds be free to think spiritually, to believe and trust in God? See, faith in, God, faith in the gospel not only gives us a new heart, but faith in the gospel also gives us a new mind, frees our mind to trust and believe in him. See, grace rescues, right? This is the rescued mind, the second point. Uh, grace rescues our mind in two ways. First, we are no longer in bondage to sin. Our minds are no longer captive to sin. We are no longer helpless to sin. Romans 8, verses 1 through 2. There is therefore no condem- now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, sin was our reality. It was our master. It was the law of our life. See, sin is a very easy way to understand sin is rejecting God and replacing him with ourselves. Right, so we live independent of him. We choose ourselves for, uh, for what is right and wrong. See, whether you're Christian or not, we have a moral, co- moral code written in us. So we know what guilt, what guilt is. Anybody can feel, feel, feel guilty, right? Uh, we all, we all feel, feel guilt. When we do something wrong, when we get caught in a lie, we feel guilty. And, and so it's, it's, it's a common experience uh, for all, whether you're Christian or not. Right? But it, goes, it just goes to show that we, we even fall short of our own standards, our own rules that we try to live by. We fall short of that. And so we're guilty. And what that guilt does, it condemns us. It condemns us. And that's why Paul says, in Christ Jesus, there is now no more condemnation because he deals with our guilt, our guilty feelings. And therefore, Jesus Christ, his blood, his blood cleanses us of a guilty conscience. Therefore, we're able to go into the presence of God boldly. That's what the author of Hebrew tells us. And this is the work of Jesus Christ, the work of of the atoning sacrifice. So we all know what it means to be guilty. But imagine that, that guilt, okay? Or imagine being confronted by God himself. Right? So we all know what, what it means to uh, feel guilty, but imagine being confronted by God and his laws. That guilt will exponentially increase. 
because he's pure, he's perfect, he has a standard. And you look at that and like, man, I fall short almost in every area of his expectations. And so the second way that, gra- the, uh, that grace rescues our minds is to free us from the guilt and pressure that God's law brings to us. I'm going to continue with Romans 8, verses 3 through 5. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, not only does Jesus free us from enslavement of sin and death, he frees us from the requirements of the law that that requires absolute perfection. The laws of God requires absolute perfection. Not relative goodness, but absolute goodness. And what Paul is saying is Jesus frees us from those expectations and requirements as well. But how does, how, does, how does grace free us from the law? Because Jesus Christ himself fulf, uh, perfectly fulfilled the law. And notice what Paul says. Jesus this, did this so that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. Uh, this is amazing. We can't miss the significance of what Paul is saying. Jesus fulfilled the law. Not only did he fulfill the law, if we have faith in him, that righteousness that he possesses is now transferred to us. It's deposited in us. It's as if I was perfect. If I had absolute perfection, because Jesus and I are now one due to faith. Now, many of us, we have credit cards, right? Unfortunately. And as, as your debt is accruing, how, how does that impact your life? It, it sucks. I still have student loan, loans that are just looming over my head, and I can't wait until that's all done, right? And I know, you know, we're not all financially, you know, we're not all good stewards, so I know there's a lot of us in debt. But how, how does that life look like, just constantly in debt? Uh, it's really, it just oppresses us, doesn't it? It just like constantly is, is nagging at us. So what, we're, what the gospel tells us, okay, is not that... Jesus cancels our debt. Again, that's only a portion of the gospel. See, when Jesus says that we are free from sin and guilt, yes, he cancels our debt. But what, we're, what we just talked about, about Christ's righteousness, now we are operating out of a surplus. So imagine all your debt being completely erased, and you go back online and look at your bank st- statement, and you see like $2 million credited to your credit card, which probably never happens. But that's what the gospel does. It cancels our debt. Not only that, we have now a surplus in our account so that we are now operating out of a surplus, not a deficit. But so many of our Christians, Christian life, isn't it, isn't it trying to earn or, or trying to uh, uh, get rid of this debt that we have towards God? That we, we live in that way. And, and, and that's not the way that the Christian life should be lived. We are living with credit in our lives because of what Christ has done. Can you imagine the experience, our Christian experience, if we truly believed this? If we really believed this 
truth of the gospel, imagine, imagine how we would live our lives. We have nothing to prove to God because Christ proved it. We have nothing to fear of God because Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sin and death. We have nothing to lose in our Christian life because we have everything in Christ Jesus. Amen? But yet, we're living our life as if we're in a deficit, trying to earn God's favor when we already have it and then some. See, real renovation, true transformation could only be possible through a guilt-free mind, a rescued mind. So our motivation isn't fear. Our motivation isn't pride, but our motivation is just genuine thankfulness and gratitude for what Christ has done. That's the only way we're going to change, brothers and sisters. A guilt-free mind, a rescued mind. To close... I want to talk about the renewed mind because the reality of living in this gap period between salvation and glorification is that sin is very still close to us. Our minds are susceptible to the old thoughts and distortions that Satan has planted in our hearts. It's still there. Satan is still there. He's trying to deceive and distort who God is to us constantly, constantly, right? And so Satan's strategy is still the same. He's trying to bind our minds with guilt and shame. And that is why our, our, our minds need constant renewal. Constant renewal. So the renewed mind. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our minds need constant renewal because we are spiritual amnesiacs. We are all so easily forgetful of this promise and this goodness of the gospel. Right? As soon as we sin, what is our posture, our position? We run away from God. Why do we do that? Because we don't truly believe that Christ has forgiven us and that there's nothing that we can do to separate us from God's love. See, do you guys see that? What happens when you're confronted by your own sin? How you react to that moment tells us or tells me what we truly understand about the gospel. When we should be running towards God and we're running away from him because we don't have a clear understanding and a grasp of the gospel. But Satan uses that. He's trying to lie to us. He's trying to distort the truth of the gospel. right? To get us to rely on ourselves for transformation. To guilt, us and sh to guilt us and to shame us to the point of despair where we just want to give up, where we question God's love and his goodness in our lives. See, for the longest time, uh, one of the illustrations that I use for sanctification, transformation, is just this huge old block of rock, right? Huge old block of rock. And sanctification is this, God getting a chisel and just chiseling away, making us into a beautiful statue like David, not, not me, the statue of David, right? right? And that's the image that, that I had and actually communicated. That's what sanctification is. The problem with that illustration is a rock doesn't have a mind, right? A rock is just a rock. And I actually think it's, it's kind of an insult to, to talk about sanctification in that way. You are a rock, right? No, we have a mind and we have a will. We have a mind and we have a will. So does renovation happen passively 
Or does it happen with active participation? And there's a huge debate about this. Does it happen just passively, just done to us, God, sanctify me, and he just chisels away? Or do we have active, active participation in our own transformation? Which one is it? If, if we fall on one extreme or another, we will, be, we will be frustrated and disappointed. That's a guarantee. If you're the position where it's just passive, God does it to me, you'll be frustrated. And if you're uh, all about self-discipline, self-will, just I'm just going to change myself, you'll be frustrated because you will fail. I believe, and again, there's debate on this. My opinion, according to Scripture, is both and. It is God's work in our lives, but it is something that God calls us to actively participate in as well. And that's why God, that's why in Scripture we just get all these commands and imperatives. It's not just for us to just ignore. Actually, we're supposed to exercise these commands that we have. So it's both and. But even our active participation, we have assistance. That's why, that's how good God is. He doesn't just leave us to figure it out on our own. He gives us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit to help us in sanctification. We have a helper. He is the spirit of truth. Now listen carefully. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. John 16, verse 13. What his role is, his, his role is to illuminate the truth, to appropriate salvation in, in our lives. That's his role. But like anything good, we can neglect it. We can ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. We can inhibit the Spirit from working in our lives by not being in Scripture, by not coming to church. And now, now it sounds like I'm being illegalistic, but God gives us means of grace for us to experience His grace over and over again because He knows we are all spiritual amnesiacs. So He gives us a church. He gives us small groups. He gives us His Word. He gives us prayer. He gives us the sacraments to remind us over and over again, you are redeemed. You are my child. You are loved. There's nothing that can separate my love for you. But we can, we, can, we can inhibit the spirit from working in our lives. See, transformation through the renewal of the mind happens when we know and live in God's will by testing it. That's what Paul says. Test it. See if it's true. Again, in the movie Inception, there's this thing called a totem, right? You guys remember the totem? It spins to distinguish from reality and a dream. Uh, it's, it's a small object that has a certain weight and it's only for that person. So sometimes when they go into dreams, they, they don't know if it's dream or reality. Like many of us, we don't know if the gospel is true or if, if, if my own condemnation or if, if condemnation is my reality. We, we, we get confused all the time because of our sins, that totem, I want to say, is scripture. It's the gospel. How do we distinguish falsehood, right, from truth? How are we going to do that if it is not the scriptures itself? The scripture is our totem. We got to go back to it constantly because other than that, we're going to listen to the world. We're going to listen to our own con uh, condemning thoughts. But when we go back to scripture, the gospel is there. And the gospel says, you're loved. One application as I close, as we close, is to be in God's word. It's very simple. 
How do we renew our minds? How are we going to renew our minds if it's not through truth? This is the most widely available means of grace, I believe, in our everyday lives. Because church is Sunday. Sacraments are Sunday. right? Prayer and the word are the most available means of grace for us, for us to remind ourselves of the gospel. Are you in it? Are you reading it? Are you meditating on it? Are you chewing on scripture? Again, I think this is such this lacking in our, in our lives. I'm not talking about a one-year plan. I'm not asking you to read the whole scripture in, in, in a matter of months or years. I'm going to encourage this. I'm going to make it very simple. Start with one of the gospels and just read a pericope, a section, each day. And, and, and don't just quickly close the Bible. Actually think about what the scripture is saying. Can I encourage us to do that? If I can give you guys one assignment, can we do that this week? Just try it out for this week. See how your mind is being renewed. See if you can distinguish reality, right? The gospel reality from false reality. I want, to test, I want us to test this because Paul asks us to test it. Can we renew our minds to scripture? See, Jesus, although his mind was pure, without guilt and shame, he sub- subjected his mind to being tormented to the point where his, his, he was sweating drops of blood. His mind was being tormented at the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew the wrath that he had to endure on our behalf. He bore, our weight, he bore the weight of our shame and guilt upon his shoulders. He died the death that we deserve to die so that we can be free, so our minds can be free to, to think of God and to pursue the thoughts of God and to, and to meditate on his truth. He died so we can be free from slavery. And he gives us a new life by his Holy Spirit. Church, can I plead and ask us, let's be transformed by the truth of the gospel day in and day out. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we, we are so easily forgetful of the truth of the gospel. And many of us, we've grown uh, stagnant in our growth, in our transformation. God, I thank you uh, that you rescued us. Not only did you give us a new heart, but you gave us a new mind that is able to receive your love, to think to think and meditate upon spiritual things. God, I pray that you'll convict us, Lord, to to move towards your word, that we can be transformed by being in your truth. God, we need your help. Give us a desire for your word. Help us, Lord, to understand your word. Give us wisdom. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you illumine the amazing depths of truth that is in Scripture so that we can fathom the height, the length, the depth, the width of God's and Jesus' amazing love for us. God, we need your help. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, but you've aided us with your Holy Spirit. Father, may you give us, again, a heart after your truth. We thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.